Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Good morning, my name's Peter. I'll be reading from uh, the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, John chapter 12, we'll only be reading the first 11 verses, uh, although we commend to you the whole of that chapter, verses 1 to 50. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Good morning, everyone. I'm Ryan. I'm the one in the t-shirt and shorts, <laughs> and sandals. Dressing it down one more level. Not that it's a competition or anything like that. <laughs> While I get myself organised here, I want to let you know about two things. Um, for those of you who got one of the handouts, in there there's a sheet titled Opportunities for Growth Groups. It's just natural time of the year, um, you know, end of the year, time for change. And there's just three, you know, simple options, simple things to think through about, yeah, what, how growth groups might play a part uh, in your life, because it's outside, one of our core commitments is seeing us as God's people grow more and more to be like Jesus. And so there's three, yeah, three things for you to think about there. And then there's um, some steps to help you think through how, how you might kind of implement some of those things. So hopefully it's helpful. It's a, it's a bit to take in. Don't read it now. Take it home with you after church and have a read. And love to, love to chat with you if you um, yeah, want to do something about growth groups. Um, also, uh, during the talk, I'm going to be mentioning a book or a guy called Paul Millet. It's a J-curve. I'm going to tell you about it now, so I don't have to pull it out of my talk and go, hey, this is a book. Um, he spends a whole book unpacking what we're going to be thinking about uh, this morning. So if you're a reader, love to read, um, this is a fantastic book. So some extra things for us. Uh, we're going to yeah, jump into John chapter 12 now together. I'm going to pray for us, so uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you speak, 
that you come to us in a way that we can know you and understand you. We can experience you and have a relationship with you. And so we are just so, so grateful and glad that we have your word, that we have your spirit. And we just pray now as we hear you speak that you would do what you've promised to do and, and change us, save us and, and make us yours. And Father, that we would know what it means to belong to you and to become more like you. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's some, there's some things that people do uh, that you know, make you kind of go, hey, look, that's great for you, uh, but not for me. Is this some kind of out there, radical, unexpected, surprising things that people choose to do that kind of just make you stop and go, man, that is just not for me. And so there's a couple of people that I've known who have provoked that kind of response in me. Let me tell you firstly about David and Joanne. Uh, I met David and Joanne and their family uh, when I was doing my ministry training on the Sunshine Coast. And David and Joanne, they owned or had a family home on the hill on Budrum on the Sunshine Coast. And if you've ever been there, ever been to Budrum, been to the Sunshine Coast, you'll know Budrum is a beautiful place. It has great views. And having a house on the hill on Budrum is pretty sweet. You know, on one side, it overlooks the whole Sunshine Coast. But on the other side, you've got this view over uh, the, the Sunshine Coast hinterland. But but David and Joanne didn't just own a family home on Budrum. They had two great boys. David had a great career in emergency services. Uh, They loved their church. They had great uh, friends and and really served and gave themselves to the life of of their church. But one day, they had a family discussion and they decided to sell their home. It wasn't because they needed the finances it wasn't because uh, Dave was getting a transfer for his work. It wasn't because they were going through or about to go through a, a divorce. It was because they were confronted with Jesus, confronted with what he says, particularly about how greedy we can be. And so they were confronted with how they just had too much for what they needed. And so they downsized not downsizing to a smaller house on Budrum, but downsizing to a house at the bottom of Budrum. Let me tell you about Kalia. Kalia is uh, a university student. She's, you know, in her early 20s, she's studying teaching at uni, and in the middle of her teaching degree, she decides to go on an eight-week trip on a boat in the Pacific Ocean. It wasn't for a holiday, Now, it wasn't because she desperately needed a break, but it was because she was going to serve eight weeks on a hospital ship heading over to P&G. She did that, well, because she was confronted with Jesus, with his care for the needy, and she wanted to do likewise. You see, if you're anything like me, hearing people's radical responses to Jesus, surprising responses, unexpected responses, well, it kind of provokes that answer. Wow, you know, that's good for you, but that's just not for me. 
And that was my response at first when I heard them share their stories. And look, if you're someone who's not even a Christian yet, you hear how people respond to Jesus and you go, man, that is just super strange. Why would someone do that in response to Jesus? Why Jesus? Why him? And in these opening verses of John, we meet another person, a woman, who responds in the same radical, unexpected, surprising way, an extravagant way to Jesus. We meet Mary. Now, Mary is not, this, is, this Mary is not Jesus' mother Mary. This is Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus. And she, or, or look what she does in response to Jesus. They're having a dinner party. Jesus and his disciples have come back into town. And verse 3 says, taking a pinch, or that's half a litre of pure nard, that's an expensive perfume. She starts pouring it on Jesus' feet and then starts to mop it up with her hair and just filling the house with this fragrance of perfume. What is your response when you see that, hear that? Well, seeing this and hearing this unfold in front of his eyes, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, just yells out, speaks up, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Verse 4, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a whole year's wage. So Mary not only uses perfume on someone's feet. Last time, well, as far as I know, perfume is not really known for being used on people's feet. And so besides her using perfume on a, on a place of the body where it's just kind of weird, it's actually really expensive perfume. This is high-end perfume, so to speak. A whole year's wage, you know, $70,000 spent to get this perfume. And she uses it on Jesus' feet. So why would Mary act in such a radical, extravagant, unexpected way? Well, it's because Mary has actually had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus has done something radical, extravagant, and unexpected in Mary's life. And if you were here with us last Sunday, you would remember that Jesus raised Mary's brother, Lazarus, from the dead. And it's recapped for us in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, okay, it starts to make a bit more sense now why Mary responded in such an extravagant, radical way to Jesus. She saw Jesus with his words raise the dead. Wow. Wow. If it doesn't produce that kind of response, man, what kind of response would it produce? And so Mary's response, it does, you know, it kind of fits. And when Jesus speaks up in verse 7, he has, well, he says to Mary, what she has done is actually a worthy response to Jesus. This is no waste. 
But as we sit here, it's, you know, it is still tempting though. It is still tempting for us to look at Mary and say, you know what? That's great for Mary, but that's just not for me. Because, you know, I haven't seen Jesus raise the dead in my life. I haven't seen Jesus do anything radical, unexpected, extravagant for me. But for a minute, just imagine, imagine if Jesus had done something radical, unexpected and extravagant in your life. Because what the passage now is going to spell out for us is that actually Jesus has. He has. And he gives us a hint in verse 7. Pick it up with me. It was intended that, she, that, that Mary would save this perfume for the day of my burial. Kind of odd. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. Jesus is saying, whatever this something unexpected, extravagant, radical is, it is actually going to be, it's going to be attached to, it's going to have something to do with Jesus' death. It's going to have everything to do with Jesus' death. So the question is, when we consider Jesus' death, when you look at Jesus' death, when you think about Jesus' death, what will it do? <clears throat> what will you think? What will you say? Well, let's lean into these questions together now um, as Jesus tells us about all this in verses 20 uh, to 36. Because in uh, verses 20 to 36, Jesus shows us what kind of death he is going to die. He's going to guide us in how we should think about his death. He's going to show us how we should see his death. He's going to help us make sense of what his death should do in us. Because at the heart of this passage, God wants us to see this. Verse 33. <clears throat> Jesus is saying all of this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And so in verses 23 to 36, there's two key things Jesus wants us to get. Two things. The nature of his death, one thing. And the other thing we could think about as what his death nurtures in us. The nature and the, the nurture of the cross. Or in other words, what kind of death Jesus' death is and what his death produces. <clears throat> and so you kind of think it like you kind of think of it like two sides of the coin, how Jesus or John kind of puts these, puts these verses together. And I've tried to capture it on the screen uh, for us there. On one side, you have verses 23 to 36 showing us, and, and Jesus speaking into the nature and um, the nurture of his death. And then you get on the other side of the passage, verses 36, uh, 33 to 36, it's kind of the other side of the coin, where he tells us again more about his nature, the nature of his death, and what it will produce in us. And so, again, the question is, as we look at this stuff, what will you think, what will you say, what will it do in you? <clears throat> so let's have a look at how these passages reveal the nature of Jesus' death. Because when it comes to death, we normally think, see, respond to it in kind of two general ways. Firstly, that death is to be avoided at all costs. It's not something 
that you want to pursue. It's something you actually want to run away from. <clears throat> the second thing is, because of that, death is unproductive. It doesn't do anything good. Nothing good comes out of death. The thing is, is that's not entirely true. Not all death is to be avoided. Not all death, deaths are unproductive. Just listen to what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24. Jesus, uh, he replies, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed, only a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. So verse 23, when Jesus is talking about you know, the hour and him being glorified, it's about, he's talking about his death on the cross. And he says that his death on the cross will be like a seed dying in the ground. Because when we think about seeds, you, know, you, you don't avoid a seed being planted in the ground and dying. Nor do we think that a seed's death in the ground is unproductive. You know, for example, um, Sarah and I, you know, when we do our grocery shopping, it's pretty eclectic. We go to lots of different places. You know, we go to Aldi, we go to Bella's, we go to Ewan's, we go to Woolies, Coles. <clears throat> but uh, recently, uh, some of you might know that Woolworths do those promotions that, hey, if you come shop here, you get some cool stuff. And it was, you know, the Lion King for a while. And, and, and recently it was like seeds for a herb garden or something like that. We had collected a bunch of these, you know, seed packets, and they kind of just sat there for ages. We only just planted them the other day. But it's kind of useless. Like, the reason you have them is to plant them so that they'll give you herbs, so you can use in your cooking and, you know, all the stuff that you use herbs for. That's what they're for. They're not there to sit on the shelf. They're there to give you what they are. And so... For a seed, for our seeds, once we planted them, they are actually springing and bursting with life. Because that's what a seed does. That's what a seed is for. It has to be planted. For a seed to do what a seed does, it has to die. It must die. Otherwise, it just remains a seed alone and useless. And it will produce nothing. And Jesus says that his death like a seed, will bring new life. His death on the cross will be different. His death on the cross isn't to be avoided. His death on the cross isn't unproductive. His death on the cross is actually why he came. But his death is also different in a different way. Because the other thing about death, when we think about death, it's to be avoided it's the reality that it's actually unavoidable. There's that saying, there's two things you'd be uncertain about in life, death and taxes. When we try and avoid death, we're actually uh, trying to avoid something that is unavoidable. And so in many ways, death feels like this unavoidable trap. No one can escape it. <clears throat> but Jesus says that his death will actually break the trap of death. Jesus will bring freedom for all those who come to him. Notice what he says in verse 31. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's on the cross, 
will draw all people to myself. And again, he said this to show the kind of death he came to die. Jesus is talking about uh, Satan here, the prince of this world, who rules and shapes the way the world is. He's the one who stirs up sin. That sin is the, the way we live our hearts bent to reject and to resist God. It's this sinful way. It's this way of resisting and rejecting God, this way of the world, this way of Satan that leads people to death and to hell which is ultimately life just without God in it. And you see, Jesus wasn't the one, though, who needed this new life. He wasn't the one who needed this freedom. We've seen over and over again, as we've asked this question, this term, why Jesus, why Jesus, we've seen that Jesus lived the most beautiful, authentic human life anyone has ever seen. Jesus, as God's son, lived a life of intimacy with God that no one has ever had. Jesus wasn't enslaved by sin. Jesus was never addicted to the way of the world. Death had no claim on him. God was never angry at Jesus because he rejected and resisted him. No, we're, those, we're the ones in the story who need the new life and relationship with God. It's us who need this new life and relationship with God. We're the ones who contribute to the brokenness and evil of the world. We're the ones who would rather have intimacy with the ways of the world than God. We're the ones enslaved and addicted to sin. We're the ones who live in the shadow of death. We're the ones who God is angry with because of the way of our life. the way we resist him and reject him. And yet, Jesus died for us. Jesus suffered the consequences for all of our sin. So we wouldn't have to. Jesus lived the life that we were made to live, but that we couldn't live. And let's face it, at times we just don't want to live. He did that for us so that we might have everything that is true of him. Jesus takes all of sin, Satan and death and its effects on himself and he overcomes them all. That's the nature of the cross. At the cross, Jesus is providing a way to new life, a fresh start in relationship with God, free from sin, Satan and death. So as we consider the, the death of Jesus on the cross, what do you see? What do you think? What does it do in you? You may not see or think that God has done anything significant in your life, like Mary raising her, a family member from the dead. But will you see and will you believe that when you look at the cross, you are seeing Jesus actually bringing you, you, back to life and relationship with God. So if Jesus' death on the cross is a different kind of death, not to be avoided, but productive, the question then is, well, this new life, this freedom, this relationship with God, what's it look like? 
is it up for grabs? Do I get to define what my life with Jesus and relationship with God looks like? Well, Jesus is going to talk about that too. And so let's look at how this passage helps us see how Jesus' death or what Jesus' death uh, nurtures in us. Because Jesus' death does nurture a particular kind of life. A particular way of life. Because remember, Jesus, as a seed, does not produce anything that is not like him. An apple seed does not produce a grapevine. When we planted um, our, you know, our herb seeds, rosemary, it's not going to produce oregano. It's going to produce rosemary. Jesus' death produces a particular kind of fruit. It'll produce himself, his likeness. It'll produce and grow and nurture his likeness in those who believe and follow him. See how Jesus says, says this or brings this out in verse 25 and 26. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves, serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. In other words, Jesus is saying anyone who holds on to their life in this world, your life in this world, living and loving the things of this world, you know, call them my, my eight deadly Ps, if you hold on to and cling to and love your personal preferences, your power, your popularity, your pleasure, your paycheck, your postcode, people, possessions, if you find your life in their existence, their death will be your death. But if you die to these things, if you let your love and living for them end and live and love me, then you will find true life, eternal life, because although I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, never to die again. This kind of life is nothing less than a display, a portrait, a character sketch of a self-sacrificial life, a person alive to God, living and loving God. This is the kind of life that Jesus' death nurtures in us. It's the same kind of willingness to die to ourselves and the way of the world. Because this is the kind of life Jesus lived. This is what characterizes Jesus. And Jesus calls, us, calls those who would believe and to follow him. To see that it's not simply a call to sacrifice a whole year's wages like Mary did. It's actually a call to give our whole life. Jesus doesn't say to Mary, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, more, more, more. And in verses uh, 35 to 36, Jesus again adds some more colour, like a painter adding to his picture of what it looks like uh, to be living in this new relationship with God, and it's the colour of freedom. Pick it up with me in verses 35 and 36. Jesus then told them, you are going to have the light just a little longer. He's talking about himself. While... Uh, walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the darkness does not know where they are going. Believe in the light 
while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. This new life that Jesus' death nurtures in us is a life of freedom from the rule of darkness, freedom from the way of sin, Satan and death. When we believe in and follow Jesus, God's unique son, we are actually enjoying and actually adopted, brought out, rescued from belonging to one family and we become a part of another, God's family, where we're made like him, being a child of God. The nature of adoption is when you adopt someone, you don't adopt part of their life. It's the whole person. God wants all of us. He takes all of us. And so naturally in response, it's our whole life that is to be more and more keeping in step with our Father. And so uh, as we hold these two together, we start to see that the way of Jesus is hard. It's a new life. It's a free life from the rule of sin or the presence of, or sorry, from the rule of sin, Satan and death. But we also know that it's not necessarily the removal of their presence. And so the Christian life is one of continuing this ongoing decision not to love the way of the world, but to love Jesus. A continual decision to live a self-sacrificial life in love of Jesus. But like Jesus, as we walk the path of self-sacrificial love, we know that we're being honoured and loved by the Father. And I think Jesus <laughs> slows us down in this passage with, some pretty with a pretty amazing moment in verses 27 and 30. Where we, we hear that as Jesus faces this himself, he says these amazing words, my soul is troubled, my heart is storm-tossed. As he appreciates the hardship and the cost of self-sacrificial love, Jesus says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it. The crowd that was there, you know, hearing it, thinks it's thunder, some think it's an angel speaking. Jesus says, no, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. What's going on here? You see, as Jesus voices the tempting question that he is tempted by himself, it's actually the same question that we're tempted by. Is there another way? Is this really for me? But he knows it is. Jesus knows that the cross is the only way. He knows that this is why he's come. And God speaks and comforts uh, his troubled heart. But God is not necessarily speaking for Jesus' sake. Like Jesus says, he's speaking for us so that we might hear God say to us as we face the hard and costly life of sacrificial love, of laying down our life for Jesus, this is the way. I am with you. We share in Jesus' comfort because we are a child of God like him. And so as we do this, we know, as we walk this path, we know that, that God doesn't give us a comfortable walk because it is not comfortable, but we have him there with us, which is comfort as we go. And so what we discover is that, the only, uh, that not only does Jesus' death on the cross give us a new life, 
but it also determines the shape of our new life. And so as we start to pull things together, there's two things that we need to take away from this um, before we're done. Our lives, although our lives mirror Jesus's, they are not Jesus's life. And so a couple of things just to think about here. Jesus's self-sacrificial death on the cross saves us, it rescues us. His death alone produces new life and a relationship with God. Our life of self-sacrificial love does not save us. So when we fall short, when we fail, when we stumble, our relationship with God, this new life, is safe and secure in Jesus. Jesus' self-sacrificial love on the cross alone saves us, not our efforts to mirror him. The second thing is that Jesus' self-sacrificial death on the cross that saves us happened once, once and for all. But ours, as we mirror him, is a lifelong echo of multiple moments where we participate and just be with Jesus as he walks the way to the cross, where we die to the way of the world again and again and again. And so it's a life of, like we were touched on before, a life of saying no, of letting go, giving an end to those eight deadly Ps, your personal preferences, your power, popularity, pleasure, paycheck, your postcode, the people, possessions. Every time you choose to love Jesus rather than these, you're planting them in the ground and letting them die. And what will rise is a life that actually reflects Jesus' own life. The other thing, uh, which, you know, why I mentioned the book, is Paul Miller really gives us something concrete and really helpful, a bit of a map, a bit of a pathway to think through what does it actually look like for me to see this kind of life nurtured in me. And so we've thought about the way of love, self-sacrificial love. We've thought about the way of um, being aware of sin and saying no, like repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God. What does it look like to put these to death? And there's steps that he, like, he attaches to this picture of a J. He calls it the J curve because when you write the letter J, you start lower and you go down. You go down and then eventually you come up and you finish higher than where you started. And so when we follow Jesus, we go down. We die to things. We say no to things. We leave things behind. But eventually we come up. And where we finish is more and more like Jesus. And so when we decide to love someone, it's a decision to find pain. To lay your life down for someone, to love someone self-sacrificially, you find pain. The next decision then is to choose to suffer, to absorb the pain, to embrace Jesus' suffering, his self-sacrificial love for you. And then you choose to love. You choose to act and reflect Jesus' love. Or take repentance, turning away from sin. We become aware of sin. We find that the problem isn't out there, it's in here, in me. And so we choose to die to it. We face our weakness and we embrace Jesus' forgiveness. And so on the way up, we actually then put on Jesus. We put on a, his character and we rise and we reflect Jesus more and more. This term we've been asking, why Jesus, why Jesus? 
Why him? Why believe? Why follow him? Well, it's because Jesus' death on the cross is a different kind of death. His death gives us new life. His death gives us a relationship with God. Something significant has happened. Jesus did something radical and extravagant for us, for you. It's a different kind of death that brings you new life and new relationship with God. It's a life, a whole life given in response to Jesus. A whole life of self-sacrificial love of Jesus. But it's given, put down in light of God's love for us, the kind of love that he loves us with, in that he loved us first in giving his son for us. So that's why Jesus, that's why we believe, that's why we follow him. I'm going to pray and then we'll have an opportunity to respond to God's extravagant love for us in, in singing together. Father, we, we are so grateful. We thank you. We praise you. We are in awe of what you have done for us in your son on the cross. Thank you for the kind of death that he died for us. Thank you that he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. Thank you that he's taken your, your anger towards the way we've rejected and resisted you so that we might be adopted by you so we may love by you, honoured by you, cherished by you, treasured as your children. Thank you that our performance, our desire and willingness to be more like Jesus, how that goes, isn't going to be the determining factor, isn't going to be the thing that our relationship with you rises and falls on. Thank you that Jesus secures this for us, that he lived that life for us. And so, Father, with this new life, with this newfound freedom in Jesus, Father, would we push on? Would we strive, um, strive and, and contend to put to death our sin and the way of the world and, and the influence of Satan and pick up, Father, loving your son Jesus and living for him wholeheartedly? And so, Father, as we do this, Father, we're deeply aware of our own insufficiency. Father, keep us from depending on ourselves. Give us the grace to go to your Son for light and life and strength, who calls us to this. Father, when we feel weak in our faith, our hearts dull, Father, would we go to your Son for the resources, for what we need, the energy, the power, that you've given to us in him and his spirit. And so, Father, we pray all this in his name. Amen.